passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, welcome back to the final episode of the Cape Cod Pod of the year. Uh, of course, I am Jeff Ponce, your host. Alongside me is my co-host, Peter Flaherty. Uh, we were responsible for the recently released uh, Cape Cod League Top 50 Prospects. We're going to talk a little bit about that list today. Talk about the end of the playoffs here, because uh, we have not recorded since prior to the championship series. That was the last time that we were recorded. Um, so it's been a few weeks now. We've had the dust settle. We've been busy reviewing the Cape Cod League and writing up reports on the the 50 players that we included. Uh, a lot of fun conversations back and forth between you and I. And some digging and research for some forthcoming articles as well that are going to be in uh, the upcoming release of the Baseball America Monthly Magazine, uh, as well as probably coming online shortly thereafter. But Peter, welcome to the show, man. How you been? Good. I'm excited to talk through the um, the championship series. That was a great one. Touch on some of the guys in the top 50. Um, and then kind of before we know it, guys will start being signed and, and announced for the 2024 season. Yeah, and we're going to try to figure out some maybe off-season stuff, talking through some rosters as they're constructed different points in the year. Maybe bring on some different guests. I don't know. I'm going to try to keep this sucker rolling. Probably won't necessarily be on like a weekly basis, but I'm going to try to do at least some uh, – a few episodes throughout the off season. I was going to ask for you, is this sort of a, a lull in the calendar for you, so to speak, where you don't have any fall ball starting up, I think for probably another week or two. And, or is that starting to kick off now? I was kind of wondering about that because you know, the, the summer season ends, you kind of have a couple of weeks, but you're working on these reports and kind of wrapping up some of the summer coverage that we do. Um, is this sort of a down period? Because I know you're going to end up with a handbook chapter shortly. So would it be after <laughs> fall ball or is it right now before fall ball starts? I think like right now, I would say, again, this is still sort of my rookie year at BA. And and once we get through this handbook, I will have gone through a full cycle. But I think that this is probably a nice little lull in the calendar where stuff is a little more manageable, a little less fast paced because, you know, I like really everyone else was going, going, going around the clock from college opening day and then through the end of the Cape season and into this report writing. And now it's kind of sit back, obviously crank out the pod with you. And then Carlos and I have a weekly um, podcast centered around draft stuff. So more podcasts and long-term projects before the handbook starts. And then at that point, it's you got a ton of stuff to talk about with fall ball, who's playing well. Um, who are some sleeper teams and then college preview stuff really starts in December. So this is kind of the, a, a nice, uh, a, a more manageable paced period of time, so to speak. Yeah. So congratulations on that for sure. Um, but 
I think the first thing I wanted to talk about was this really exciting championship series. I know it's been almost three weeks now since the final game took place a couple Sundays back. Um, really exciting moment. It was a back and forth game early on. Um, very passionate. Uh, <laughs> we almost had an on-field fight after uh, Derek Bender, who's one of our top five players in the Cape, we'll be talking about in a few moments. Uh, hit a big home run to kind of seal the victory for Bourne, who had come back. If I'm not mistaken, they were down two or three to nothing. You probably can double-check the box score. Um, come back, and then Bender has this this huge home run, I think, in the top of the eighth inning, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. And uh, he kind of sits there, admires it. The catcher tells him to get going. They kind of get into a tiff. This kind of became a bit of a viral moment for the Cape Cod League as well. Um, as you kind of got the old school, new school dichotomy of arguing over, should he move on? Should he be allowed to, you know, admire his home run? And I think both of us kind of fell into the camp of like, both are in the right. Like, you know, championship game. He's passionate. He's going to do his thing. He wants He's playing with swagger as he always does. Uh you know, and the catcher doesn't like it. And, and I don't blame the catcher for not liking it. You know, he should be kind of protecting his guys and not letting somebody show up as pitcher. I understand that. So I look at it from both perspectives. I thought it was a fun moment for the Cape. And uh, Bourne ends up clinching their second consecutive Cape Cod League championship. It's their third consecutive Cape Cod League championship series. But they've now won back-to-back titles. It's the first time that a team has done it, I think, since 13-14. With Yarmouth Dennis, did I get my years correct there, uh, Pete? Yeah, the Whitey Dynasty, it was 14, 15, and 16. They three-peated. Okay, so 15 and 16 was the last time I had. Yeah, but I, I think to your point, one, the championship series was excellent. I know in our podcast previewing it a couple of weeks ago, we each said it would go three games. You picked correctly picked Bourne. I incorrectly picked Orleans. But um, I think, again, as we talked about, whenever there's a championship series and – in the highest stakes imaginable, you wanted to go to that third game, that, that game seven equivalent. And, and these two teams didn't disappoint. All three games were really close. Bourne took a close game one win um, at Eldridge. Grayson Carter was actually outstanding. Who's also on the top 50 prospects list. He was outstanding through the first three, three plus innings. And then Bourne got to him game two Orleans responded with a close four to three win. Um, born almost, they had a chance to walk it off and, and win the championship in the bottom of the ninth, but, um, Sean Matson again, top 50 guy slammed the door. And then in game three, um, it was, or Orleans went up to nothing on the, on the strength of two Joe Oyama home runs, who I think is number six on our list. Um, and then born as they had done one all series and two all year, um, scraped across enough runs to, um, to take home the title, they had a rally in the sixth that included um, a Sam Peterson RBI single, um, a Derek Bender double, and then sort of the exclamation point was that Derek Bender, no doubt, home run in the eighth inning to put them up 5-2 for good. And I think that the unsung hero, maybe not even unsung at this point because I think he's getting a lot of the recognition he deserves, but Anthony DeFabia from Stetson, he was a late uh, – he was actually an early guy for Bourne was released and then brought back for the playoffs. Um, He arguably is the MVP of that game. He threw four and a third perfect innings out of the bullpen with four Ks. Um, I don't think that they win that game without his relief performance. He's a pitchability lefty. Everything was going for him um, in the, in game three of the championship was locating his fastball. Well, to both sides of the plate missed barrels um, for the entirety of his outing and, and looked really good. So, 
huge credit to him and obviously huge credit to Bourne. I think with baseball, whether it's a 162 MLB game season or a 44 plus game summer ball season, um, it is so random and, and such a difficult sport to have sustained success, championship success. And the fact that Bourne made it in 21 and now has won it in 22 and 23 is a real testament both to the higher ups in the organization and then obviously in the last two seasons alone, a big testament to Coach Landers and his staff for bringing together 30 plus individuals throughout the year and making them play as one team. And for the most part, these guys don't know each other coming into the summer. Um, they may have played with each other on the travel ball circuit, or you have a couple of pairs of teammates or a trio of guys from the same school. But for the most part, it's a, it's a group of 30 individuals that um, born so consistently has gotten to turn into a team. And it's really evident that they love playing with each other and love playing for born and, and they want to win. And, it cannot be overstated how difficult a task that is, especially nowadays with the draft in July, the portal, so many variables that can kind of throw a wrench into your season. It, it cannot be overstated how difficult and impressive it is um, that Bourne has been able to do this. So um, huge, huge credit to them. And I know that they'll be right back in the mix next year. They always come in with a talented roster on paper um, and they've more than backed it up. So um, they will be, again, very, very competitive in 2024. Yeah, and I think, you know, you look from top to bottom in that lineup, and they were it was littered with prospects for the 24 and the 25 draft. They had good underclassmen as well. Um, you look back on that roster last year and the year before, they've just been able to bring in consistent talent and keep those guys. I know that we've talked about across a couple different podcasts. And also credit to Kelly Nicholson, who – you know, it's funny, they, they took that lead in that game, and I was thinking, and it's funny because you brought it up, I was like, you know, it'd be nice to be right and having picked Bourne, but I would be really okay with being wrong just to see Kelly get another title because I think it's been 18 years now since they won in 05, if I'm not mistaken, so it was his first year at the helm. Um, you know, he's had some tough years with some weird departures and injuries and USA guys and you know, building a good roster and then sort of getting stripped by the factors, uh, you know, that are out of your control as a manager of a Cape Cod League roster or summer ball roster. I think we've seen that talked about by summer ball managers and, and GMs all throughout the country and all the different leagues and all the different factors that are now impacting them in new ways that they hadn't dealt with prior to the pandemic because so much has really accelerated and changed. Um, but to have, you know, seven or eight, six or seven, eight, players on our top 50 i think speaks volumes um a lot of west coast talent as he always gets but also you know giving opportunities to guys like madsen etc and letting them really you know take the ball and run with it Derek clark these are not guys that coming into the year when we were sitting here doing the preview reading off the names on the roster sheet even matt hallback for that matter even though i know he's had you know some pretty good seasons um i don't think that we were necessarily trumpeting those guys as must-sees or guys who are going to have really impactful capes, right? They were just names on a list. And that's one of the great things about the cape is guys like this can establish themselves from different schools, from, you know, we'll say mid-majors, if that's what you want to call it, et cetera, and can come in and really perform and, and you know, serve memorable roles for their team, but also, you know, improve their their stock and opportunities to play professionally at the next level. Yeah, and, and we've sung Coach Nicholson's praises numerous times, and rightfully so, on the podcast. He is an ED-grade human being, an excellent coach, and 
um, a future Cape League Hall of Famer without a doubt. And, and as you said, he's always got talented teams. Um, he, and I think that he is an unfortunate victim. And I know he's he'd never be one to make an excuse and 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 say any of this, but he's an unfortunate victim of kind of the powers that be with USA, the portal shutdowns and injuries. They're always one of the most talented rosters on paper. And this guy, and and this year, um, it was interesting. They didn't have maybe the loudest names, as you had said. Um, like, I mean, Sean Matson's a prime example. He was actually a starter at Harvard um, of his 12 appearances, made 11 starts. Uh, had rather pedestrian numbers, and I didn't foresee him um, running away with the most outstanding reliever award this summer. And, and I mean, he was the best reliever far and away in the league. And then again, Jack Penny had a rather modest year at Notre Dame emerged in, as an all-star was one of the most steady bats for the firebirds, Joe Yama. Um, I w- kind of had a little bit of excitement around Joe after what I saw, what he did after I saw what he did last summer in the West coast league, winning the MVP. Um, but I didn't think that he would come in and dominate the Cape League to the tune of a 360 average and um, 21 extra base hits, and he hit the two home runs in Game Three. Uh, I, I could go on and on with Orleans, but again, similar to Bourne, similar to Bourne, they're a, they're an organization that is always right in the thick of things, um, year in and year out. They're always very competitive. Um, you can always. I think set your watch to them not having a down year. And I know again, baseball is so weird. You never really know, but similar to Bourne, our Orleans will be right back in the mix next summer. Yeah, absolutely. And I uh, just love to see success there. And I think um, two communities that really rally around their teams too, I would say you know, there's an element of Bourne that's less transient um, than other Cape towns, you know, where there's a lot of year rounders that live in Bourne. Um, you know, folks live right over the bridge, right? Um, just big communities there. I think of, you know, faithful fans and host families, et cetera, that are there year after year. And as far as game day environments, um, I think there's there's some environments out there that can probably lay claim. Uh, but I think, you know, when you start a list, you have a conversation about great game day environments. Orleans kind of leads the conversations most of the time. Um, you got folks you know that are putting out their blankets four five six seven hours before first pitch (laughs) so they get their spots on the hill um and it's just a real big community event and you know i the numbers of uh, i forget what the actual figures were of attendance but if you go back and you look at the tape there are even people along like the lining was that route six right there right that are like right in those metal like excuse me the the wooden barriers that like are on the back end of like the field where the dugout is. There were like people lined along those just sitting there. Um, kind of unbelievable. So uh, just a great experience. And, you know, I thought it was uh, a really good way to kind of celebrate a really fun summer this year, though. I was down there a little bit less. I felt like uh, because you were there, we had a little bit more coverage maybe even uh, between the two of us, um, which was a blast. We got to see a lot of great players, uh, some good moments and uh, kind of, you know, head into next year's draft. Now, that being said, one of the big themes was the home run numbers. Uh, we talked about this a lot in the podcast. We'll probably talk about it in a minute. Um, but Cole Mathis and first Hunter Hines, Cole Mathis of College of Charleston and Hunter Hines of Mississippi State, um, both hit double-digit home runs. This is the first time that's been done since Bobby Dahl back in 2015, I believe. And overall, the league um, 
has been trending up in terms of home runs, I'd say, after, oh, since 2019. We've seen the league eclipse 285 home runs, I think, in every season since 2019. Prior to that happening, it only happened one time, if I'm correct. Um, we'll talk about that one time in a moment. But there was also a record uh, in terms of Katuit hit 44 home runs. It was the first time since uh, the 2012 season that anybody had hit more than 41 home runs for a team uh, in a season. And that 2012 season is something I want to talk about a little bit there. Um, but the home run environment was up. We also had six teams uh, surpass 30 total home runs over the, the, the total of nine, uh, 10 teams. Uh, that was the second highest number after this 2012 season. So uh, I'll have some information coming out this. We'll have a chart in the article that shows and lays everything out from 2010 all the way to 2013, missing obviously that 2020 season when there was no games. But over, you know, over a 12, 13 year sample, Peter, we had a season in 2012 where nine teams hit 30 plus home runs. There was a record, I have to pull the number up, but off the top of my head, I believe it was 384 total home runs, which was almost more than 100 from this season and, and this sort of high home run period that we're in right now. Also, if you add up the 2010 season and the 2011 season together, uh, the 2012 season still had more home runs than those two years combined. You'd actually have to add in the 2013 season. And still, with those three seasons combined, it's just barely over 100 home run difference between those three years and 2012. 2012 was truly remarkable. Funny enough, it was the season that Aaron Judge was on the Cape. He did not leave the Cape in home runs, miraculously. But there were five players that hit double-digit home runs in that 2012 season. And we've only had three do it since. Uh, and there was no one that did it in the few years before that that we have in terms of like our point streak records. So I went as far back as 2010. I'm sure there's other numbers and examples prior to that 2010 period, but I felt like it was a good example. I don't want to go too far back. Uh, and I thought it gave you a good snapshot. So I went out and I reached out to some scouts and some folks that were around and working with Cape Cod League at that time in 2012. And I got the same answer both times. And that was juiced ball. We don't know why the ball was juiced. We don't know where the juice balls came from. I know that there was some component of a newer ball manufacturer and there were MLB balls that, that didn't pass the sniff test that maybe ended up in the Cape. I don't know. There's something along those lines. We'll have to do some more digging and journalism over the years to try to figure out more about this season. But in doing this research, Peter, and the reason I bring it up, I am obsessed with this 2012 Cape Cod League season because these numbers don't make any sense. And they make even less sense when you put it in historical context of the seasons that were around that and the type of totals you were seeing in the Cape Cod League where 200 home runs in a Cape Cod League season at that point was pretty was high, would have been one of the better power seasons. We saw a year where things jumped up so high that it was almost 400. So I, don't, I know you were probably maybe around, but were very young at the time. I was not around the Cape Cod League in that period. Um, what were your thoughts on this? Because I, I think this 2012 story is kind of remarkable. It's unbelievable. And I think that we discovered the absurdity of the 2012 season around the same time because Katuit and, and really just the home run league totals, like 
as we were going through this year, um, we seemed a little high and we kind of got interested in, in seeing, oh, when was the last time, you know, a team hit over 40 home runs or because um, it's a pretty solid total. And then we ended up discovering the 2012 season, which is just absolutely obscene. As you mentioned, 384 total home runs compared to this year, which was, again, a really high total. It was 287, which is dwarfed by the 2012 season. Yeah, I think Harwich is 64. It's such a remarkable total for so many reasons. The first being 64 in a 44-game season in general is just so bonkers on the Cape against the talent that you're facing day in and day out. And then also the fact that Harwich notoriously is a graveyard to hit at, especially to dead center. The ball doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't fly to any part of the yard. Um, it is it is kind of where home run balls go to die, at least nowadays. And the fact that they hit 64 is unbelievable. Same with Wareham's 51, a similarly big ballpark. And then nine teams hitting over 30 is, I mean, it's, it's such an absurd and fascinating season that I'm really excited for your piece to come out. And then also to hear from some of these scouts as well as to what it was like, because it is so different than literally any other season in league history. And I think the funniest part of it is you go to the following year in 2013 and there were 165 total home runs. Yeah. And you, had, and you had three teams hit under 10 home runs and seven teams hit under 20 home runs with YD hitting 20 on the dot. So it's such a it, it's it's so fascinating for a number of reasons, but I think that the 2012 Cape League season um it it deserves the the recognition that it's about to get. Well, what I was told too is that it made evaluations very hard because you had a guy like phil irvin who i think hit 13 um harwich had three or four guys in double digits if i remember as did wareham maybe wareham maybe wareham had three and harwich had two and then they had like a bunch of guys with like nine seven six four you know like pretty good totals um but i was told is that it made that year's fenway showcase the kate day at fenway all the more important because they weren't using those balls or using major league equipment in a major league stadium. And it allowed them to kind of separate the men from the boys. And one of the big standouts of that particular uh, event was Aaron judge and how much stronger he was than everybody else and how much better his power was than everyone else, despite these guys with these astronomical home run totals. So, um, really pretty interesting how that all came to be. And it's kind of remarkable to look back and think that judge was there and didn't hit like 20, right? Like just thinking about the kind of hitter he was and the power that he had just kind of remarkable to think that that's, that's what happened. So uh, I wanted to bring that up because I thought that that was uh, an interesting oversight. Cause I think you can make the case that outside of that crazy juice ball, 2012 season, this might've been the best home run season of all time. It's third all time tied for third. Um, all time in total home runs in a season. Uh, I believe that the highest total was 2019, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, and I will say this in a per game total basis, 2021 was really high. Because um, obviously they didn't play a full 45 games, 44 game schedule that season. Um, so that kind of, you know, when you look at the numbers and you look at, it's like, all right. But I think it's like kind of what we were seeing in that year where, 
people who were off for a year were getting the rust off. And I can remember the ball flying out of the ballpark that year a little bit too. Um, but it wasn't as surprising, we'll say. Um, so there you go. So just kind of an interesting aside. Let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, let's get into uh, this top five and talk a little bit about the list and you know our approach to ranking. What do you say? Let's do it. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't a search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. That's why I use Indeed for our hiring at Baseball America. It allows me to do everything on one website. I get quality candidates. I can schedule them. I can interview them. I can screen them. I can send messages to them all within Indeed. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, and we are back. So we're going to jump in now uh, to the top five of this list. I don't think we're... We're, we're leaking anything big here. Uh, you can go on and read the entire top 50. We're going to talk through the top five. You can guess what some names are. We have one name outside of the top five we'll talk about as well. Uh, but number one, Travis Bazana. I think this is not a surprise to anyone who's listened to this podcast. Number two, Cameron Smith, uh, third baseman from Hyannis, also Florida State. Um, number three, Derek Bender, who we mentioned earlier. He's a catcher from Bourne and Coastal Carolina. Uh, J.J. Weatherhall, who's a second baseman from West Virginia, played for Chatham this summer. And Seaver King at number five. He's an infielder because he played mostly second base and third base here, but plays some shortstop. Uh, just transferred to Harwich from Division II Wingate and, excuse me, to Wake Forest from Division II <laughs> Wingate. And he was at Harwich, of course. So um, kind of talking through this top five, I don't think we have to spend a ton of time in Bazana. We've spoke about him ad nauseum on this podcast, and I don't think there's anything at this point that's going to surprise anybody that we say. Um, great all-around player um gamer you know um probably more power coming as well and just the hit tool was unbelievable and just the the baseball instincts and um you know fight we'll say you know there's just uh there's a lot of fight in that dog so one of our favorite cape players i think uh of all time maybe the last couple of years he really performed while he was here i don't think i have to say anything else but let's talk about number two cameron smith um I don't think I necessarily had the expectations I had for him coming in that I had for Bazana. Um, but he's a draft eligible sophomore next year. Really impressed in the Cape. And I think the most impressive thing about Smith was the hit tool. So I want to talk to you a little bit. You got to see a ton of Smith this summer. What impressed you most and how far did he exceed your expectations? Because I think that's part of the story here with Smith's summer. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think with Smith is I heard a lot about him in the fall, last fall, as someone who arrived at FSU, he had significant draft interest at high school. Um, he showed up and had arguably the best fall of any position player on the team, um, dominated their pitching staff. And then as the season progressed, he went through typical um, freshman growing pains, which wasn't really a shock to, you know, I'd say anybody. Um, he ended up hitting a pretty respectable 258 with eight doubles and 12 home runs. So a solid season altogether. But one thing that really plagued him were swing and miss issues and approach issues specifically against um, and picking up spin. He struck out 66 times and 209 at bats. And so coming into the summer, I expected a little bit of a similar trajectory as his college season had. Um, I expected him to show flashes and for his really good to look really freaking good. Um, and then also other times to, you know, not look as good, but again, six, three, two He's got a big league body look more than looks the part. Um, excellent makeup. And this summer for Hyannis, he took home, um, the top pro prospect award and rightfully so with Travis winning the MVP award and he had 347, 12 doubles, six home runs, four triples. Uh, I think that what impressed me the most were the strides that, his approach made. Um, I, I mentioned it earlier, but the approach at Florida state wasn't really, I, it was, it was not as polished really struggled with spin and pitch recognition and working this summer with hitting coach Tino Martinez, <clears throat> excuse me, really paid dividends for Smith cut down a lot on the swing and miss, especially on the chase rate. And then also just the miss rate in general, the bat to ball skills went up. And, um, you know, a, a lot of that can be attributed to coach Martinez and Smith's work ethic. I know one adjustment he made lowered his hands a little bit with two strikes. Again, it's a, it, we're not reinventing the wheel here with this one, but he eliminated his stride, widened his base and let his natural and, and physical strength just, just really work. And it, and it paid off for him. And I think that at times it was, it was 60 raw power and, the hit tool right now, I'd probably give a, I'd probably give a 50 and it's a, and it's a six arm over a third. So he's got two sixes and a five um, average or so runner. He's definitely going to stick on the left side of the infield. Um, and he moves well for his size. He, he underratedly moves pretty well. And I think that after this summer and what I think is going to be a really good and um, loud sophomore year at Florida state, he's going to be a, uh, a first round draft choice in 2024 as a draft eligible sophomore. So a, a really excellent summer for Smith. Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, one of the reasons that uh, I had to, I had to bring that up. Um, number three, Derek Bender. I know we mentioned him before. Um, I felt like this was right along with Smith, one of the breakout prospects of the summer. Had a little bit of a lull, was I think a little beat up for a couple of weeks around the All-Star break um, or the All-Star game, kind of coming out of that. Um, had he stayed as hot as he was, there was a chance that he could have won this MVP award. Um, I don't know how the voting shook out. I didn't look at that. You might know off the top of your head. It would not surprise me if Bender did get some MVP votes. This was one of the most impactful bats. Uh, he kind of played that Dalton rushing role of a couple of years ago uh, as a, a catcher that might play a few different places, but you're really just looking to get that bat in the lineup and watch him do damage. And he hit for power. He hit for a ton of batting average um, and just came up in big moments. I mean, you know, came up in big moments in the Cape league championship game and came up in big moments in the Cape league all-star game even. So 
Uh, this guy had one of the better summers I've seen in a while um, and a really fun personality uh, on top of it. Someone that I think is uh, kind of easy to cheer for going forward. So um, going to be interested in following his career. And, you know, he had his uh, his catching mate and a fellow well, T's top 25 uh, Cape Cod League prospect in Caden Bodine as well. So Coastal's got a Coastal's got a, a, a heck of a rotation there. No, big time. And with Bender, as a true freshman at Coastal, he was he played pretty sparingly. He only had 32 at-bats and then played in the Coastal Plain League the following summer. He really broke out in his sophomore year this year. He hit 341, 13 doubles, 19 home runs, drove in 83 runs. And then this summer on the Cape, as you mentioned, if he didn't spend a couple of weeks kind of dinged up from his workload and and all of that, he's he's probably right in the thick of this MVP race likely finishes in the top three in voting, but still an unbelievable season. He set the born single season record in batting average. He had 374, seven doubles, four home runs. And perhaps most underratedly was that he led the league in stolen bases with 18. And I, you know, I've seen him run and, and, and all of that. And the speed isn't, I mean, he's far from a clogger, but I'd say he's still pretty, you know, he's an average runner. Um, and so, I mean, he just picked his spots smart to steal and, um, he was a smart runner and, and with good baseball IQ, but, um, with Bender, I think his future might be over at first base, which when talking about the profile, it might hinder it a little if teams view him as a right, right first baseman, but he's going to really, really hit this year at coastal. Um, I think that the home run total he'll at 20 plus, um, and, and be pretty similar average wise. Uh, they have a, they'll have a deep lineup again, so he's going to be hard to pitch around. But um, I think on the bat alone, he could sneak into the first day of the draft as a second round pick. And then worst case, I think he'd be selected early, early on day two. So um, a dominant summer for Bender and um, he's going to, he's going to continue his toward hitting the spring at coastal, I think. So number four and number five here, we have two guys that uh, did go to USA uh, trials. Um, Weatherholt made the team, correct? Did Seaver King make the team as well? Yeah, both Seaver okay. King and JJ Weatherholt made the team. Interesting. So, sort of there you go. Um, both those guys made the team. So, that means that they had an unusual summer where it was kind of split up. Um, Weatherholt dealt with some injuries. Seaver King, um, you know, sort of uh, exited a little bit early as well after he had returned. Um, so, they didn't have a huge track record here. I feel like this kind of comes into the more general rankings conversation of, you know, the type of stuff uh, that we have to consider when we're making this list. And that is we have some great draft prospects that maybe have limited time here, but while they're here, they're impressive, which is, I think, the Weatherholt and Seaver King case. Spencer Torkelson would have been one of these a few years ago. Andrew Vaughn a few years before that. Um, so just kind of putting all that into perspective, we still want to write about those guys, especially if they spend, you know, more than six or seven games here. We want to write about those guys. Seaver King was a big part of the story during the summer. I think J.J. Weatherholt, when he was with um, Chatham, was also a big part of the story this summer. Um, so seeing both of those guys on the list, I think, is important. But it also kind of bleeds into the, the conversation and the fact that number nine on this list, Joe Yama has been draft eligible multiple times now. He's got an unusual background, come from Okinawa, Japan, uh, coming over here, immigrating, you know, enrolling in a school, going through that whole practice, et cetera. Um, not all that 
dissimilar from Rigo Nishida, somebody that you know was obviously a big star last year. Um, but Oyama was different than you, um, um, uh, 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 Riku in the sense that he really hit from start to finish, and it wasn't just complimentary singles hitting and good base running and a lot of the fun baseman uh, gamesmanship stuff that Riku does. It was pure hitting. Um, great hit tool, great approach, the contact. He was rarely ever beaten. You can't get a fastball by this guy. And he started to show power toward the end. And it's not easy to hit for power on the Cape. I think we've just spent some time talking about that. Um, even with the environment, you know, he had a multi, multi-home multi run game. Um, had maybe, what, five, four, five, six throughout the season, um, which is a pretty good number for a guy that supposedly didn't have any power. He's showing a little bit more of it now because of his background. It's kind of unusual. I wonder with him, if he's just the guy that frankly teams just didn't have a great feel for until it was too late. And I wonder had hindsight for 2020 and we asked some teams now, would you have taken a chance on this guy in round 12 to 20 and paid him 125 to $200,000. And I bet you there's some teams out there that might've done it. I've heard, I've actually had teams when I've asked them this directly front office people that are involved in some of the amateur decisions say, yeah, I think that we didn't fully understand um, how good he was. And I think that's part of it. But also this guy had one of the three best summers this year. So him for him to be at nine, I think is a balance of the prospect status and the stuff we mentioned before. But we also have to give some credence to guys that stick around, perform, and are a big part of the story. I That's a great point because I think that it gets into a little bit of a, I don't know if gray area is the right phrasing. It's a blend of prospect status and then also what you did on the Cape. Obviously, Joe Yama is the perfect example because if it was purely just a prospect list, you'd see guys like Brody Brecht, Mike Sirota, Billy Amick, those types of players very well represented on this list. And I know with Weatherholt and King, their time was so limited on the Cape, but these are especially Weatherholt. Weatherholt's probably, you know, Weatherholt's a 1-1 candidate for next year. Um, and Seaver King is looking like a likely first round, early second round type pick. With Weatherholt, he had 450 at West Virginia, 24 doubles, 16 home runs, swiped 36 bases. I know he only played eight games this summer for Chatham, but he had 320, four doubles, a home run. I mean, he showed out really well. Excellent feel for the barrel. Those trademark bat-to-ball skills were on display. It would have been wrong to leave him one outside of the top five and two off the list completely. Seaver King similarly uh, was one of, if not the best player at the Division II level last year for Wingate. He hit 411, 20 doubles and 11 home runs, and then was outstanding in his 16 games for Harwich. He had 424, four doubles, one home run, super twitchy and explosive athlete. Um, again, it would have been wrong to leave someone like that outside of the top five or so on this list. And then with Oyama, he is such a unique case because so much goes on the draft side of things with Oyama scouting departments knew about it. I mean, he had a great year at UC Irvine. Um, it wasn't like, you know, he kind of popped up on the Cape, so to speak, where, I mean, he exploded, but he had close to 320 at Irvine, similar K to walk ratio, seven doubles, seven home runs, um, above average runner, still 14 bases. 
And then this summer, as you mentioned, if, when you combine the the playoffs and regular season, he had 344 with 13 doubles, six triples, eight home runs, solid K to walk ratio with 37 Ks to 29 um, walks, swiped seven bases. I think with Oyama and it's such a unique profile because he's a little undersized at 5'7", 170. Um, the defense at second base um, is a little shoddy at times. And again, it's a, such a unique career path where he's a little older. I am surprised that, and you know what, with, with how the draft is and in advisors nowadays, I'm, I don't know this for a fact, but I'd be pretty surprised if he didn't at least get calls or interest somewhere on day three. Um, and they just couldn't come to an agreement on a dollar amount or, or whatever it might've been for him to sign, but sure. I'm sure he got interest on day three. Um, and now it's his profile becomes that much more interesting because he's going to be 23 and a half, um, more than 23 and a half at next year's draft. Um, so on the older side, I think that he's going to be one of the more coveted. I think he's a, you kind of have to, I think, call still, I think he actually still has two, two more years. Yes. So he's going to be one of the more coveted older age signs, I think in the draft class, um, whether that's taking a major deal on day two or being selected sort of in the 11th to 15th or so round range, maybe a little later, um, he's going to get drafted and play professional baseball um, next summer. And I think when you compare him to Riku, uh, he doesn't have the bat to ball skills that Riku does or the, a refined approach that Riku does. Riku's bat to ball skills are, are off the charts and the field for the barrel is excellent. Oyama does have, I'd say above average bat to ball skills and, and he sees the ball well, but it's not at Riku's level. He's not a plus runner, borderline double plus with Riku, but not a plus runner like Riku is, but the hit tools above average, I'd say raw power. I mean, it's, it's pretty solidly average. It's hard to not say that after the summer that he had and, and the power that he hit for. So he's a really interesting prospect. Um, as you mentioned, he had one of the, the three to five best summers of any player on the Cape. And I think that the ranking that he's at on the top 50 list, um, it suits him well. And again, when you talk about the blend of, of rewarding a guy for sticking it out for a whole summer, I mean, he played 47 games this summer, which is, uh, that's a, that's a big time workload after he came off a, a college season in which he played 53. So, um, he's at a hundred games even. And I think that you obviously have to reward the summer he had. So, um, nine is a good spot for him. Yeah, no, totally agree. And I think that gives you some insight to kind of the dynamics and the stuff that's at work here. And I, I think you do need to give um, some credit and some credence to that. And we have draft rankings. Like people mention this and I'm like, we, <laughs> we literally have draft rankings on the site. You don't need me to rank out the best prospects based on the draft status. Uh, Cause then you'd have guys like Jace Lavalette who played six games. Who right. Are in our top five or six. And I don't think that tells the story of this summer. Uh, but that being said, we're wrapping up. We're going to wrap up here. I want to ask you sort of what's your, what's your, your, your takeaway memory from the 2023 Cape Cod League season of a moment, a game, anything in particular? Ooh, that's a great question because it was one of the more, even with all of the variables involved, I think it was one of the more exciting and entertaining Cape League seasons 
in recent memory. I think one is the home run race between Hunter Hines and Cole Mathis, and also RBI race at that. Um, Hines beat out Mathis in both categories, 13 home runs and 45 RBIs for Hines to Mathis's 11 home runs and 42 RBIs. I think that was really fun to follow and keep track of because it was a legit home run race for the entire year, for the most part, at least. Um, another one is seeing Travis Bazana tear up the league like he did. Um, he's on a very, very short list. I think I can count on one hand the guys I've seen dominate like Travis Bazana did. And at least in my memory, it's Alec Bohm, Nick Gonzalez, Travis Bazana. Um, I think those are the three guys that I've seen really light it up. And then individual memory, it's it's such a stock answer, and those listening might roll their eyes, but game three, the championship, I have to go with Derek Bender's. I think I can call it championship ceiling at this point, home run. Um, it was just such a, a cherry on top of an excellent season that he had and an excellent season that Bourne had, and I think that that was good – Honestly, like my whole takeaway of that situation was that was good baseball all around. I think that Derek Bender deserves to admire a home run hit like that in that scenario. You are there for from day one of the season. You're the heart and soul of the team. You hit that home run. You can stand there and watch it. And I also give credit to Henry Hunter, the catcher, gets in his face a little bit, tells him to get moving down the line. You know, don't show up my pitcher, you know, get a move on. Nothing happened after benches didn't clear. It was just a really competitive moment all around and a great baseball moment. So uh, I'll go with that. Yeah. Mine, uh, my simply is, uh, you know, taking my seven-year-old to the Katuit camp and the games that we went to afterward and him uh, constantly bothering the players and asking for autographs nonstop. I think that will uh, <laughs> that will stick with me long beyond that. And of course that crazy Falmouth Katuit game where, uh, Bazana, whatever, drove in like 12 runs. Um, that's another one that I probably won't soon forget. So those are sort of lasting memories for me from this summer. Uh, top 50 Cape Cod League prospects, it's up on the site. We're not going to ruin any more of it. We gave you the top five. We gave you a little taste of the back end of the top 10 with Oyama. We want you to go on and we want you to read the other 44 reports. So over 10,000 words here. We dug in deep, not only on performance and background, um, but also, you know, digging in on just like velocity of pitches, how pitches move, um, how pitches perform. We got some whiff rates and contact numbers and chase rates and, and all that sort of stuff mixed in as well. So you can get a good mix of kind of scouting information, just your college obsessive type stuff. And then some analytical data as well to kind of back it all up. Um, you know, nice little uh, composite. It's a kitchen sink type of cookie. If you want to say that cowboy cookies, whatever they call those suckers, you know what I'm talking about, Peter, but um, we're going to try to come back with some more Cape Cod league pods. Maybe we'll bring in some managers. Maybe we'll bring on some former players and talk about their experiences. I mean, there's a lot to do with this podcast. So uh, until the next time, thanks for tuning in and enjoy your summer. Mm-hmm.